This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this episode, we're going to dive into an industry that we haven't necessarily looked at in detail yet. We are going to talk about the business of sports. And we're going to talk about it in connection with the TV deals that make sports so valuable to the television industry. That's a good point. In many ways, I guess there are there are other angles that we could look at. Uh, certainly, radio is really important, uh, an important vehicle for sports and sports journalism in, in newspapers and in magazines. But our focus today is very much on various ways of televising sports events. At this point, I don't think we can even talk about the business of sport without talking about media. No, especially because the biggest form of income for any of these leagues is these sports deals. These deals are worth billions and billions of dollars every year. And why are we talking about sports this time, Alex? Well, there's this little event starting on August 5th called the Olympics. Well, it's supposed to start on August 5th. And let's hope Brazil is not aflame when the Olympics start, given all the stories that are coming out of there. Oh, if we went back, I think we could find this cycle of how buildings aren't going to be ready, how disaster will certainly befall the Olympics. Yeah, pretty much wasn't every pollution going to kill everybody in Beijing? It was pollution in Beijing. It was traffic in London. It's always something. But anyway, it, it is Olympic time and therefore time to talk about sports and TV. And in order to sort of structure this conversation, I think it's important to pull apart two different types of sports coverage. One, the sports event. And there I'm thinking about things such as the Olympics, March Madness, and the Super Bowl. Now, when, when we were making this rundown, Amanda included the Super Bowl with sports events. And while I think it is, well, it's, while I think it is the most important television event every year... I, I wanted to move this a little bit into our second topic of conversation, regular sports leagues. So the NFL, the MLB, and all the deals like that. And I give you, I give you the fact that indeed the, the actual licensing deals for an event like the Super Bowl is, is part of those regular sport league, this regular sport league coverage. But what, in my mind, makes the Super Bowl more of a sports event is the nature of what that event means to viewers and consequently then... Advertisers, And so the Super Bowl, even though the license is part of that whole uh, regular sports league deal. It's a part of the giant contract that the NFL has signed with the the networks it has. It is. But the Super Bowl is an event uh, unlike just week 10 of the regular NFL season. Good job. You you got a sports term. Oh, goodness. Anytime we get a sports term today. I, I expect a little cheer from you all because we are far from experts. About we can do Broadway. We can do sports events. We can do it all. All right. So let, let's start out with the events. So what are the initial challenges behind these sports? Well, as in any business, there's a situation of cost versus revenue. Uh, and there's been a fair bit of coverage uh, in the trade press and even general press about just how expensive the Olympics have been. Uh, and NBC has been the winning bidder, um, my, for as long as even I can remember, probably your whole lifetime, Alex. I, I don't remember a time where the Olympics weren't on NBC. I heard they were on ABC at some point. I, I believe that could be true. But because the fee for or the cost of, of the rights is so high, for the most part, the Olympics ultimately end up being a break-even endeavor, um, and and sometimes not even that. So th- I think with the London Olympics, we're the first ones in a while to be profitable. 
Exactly. And so even though a lot of revenue uh, is generated by the various sponsorships and advertisements connected with the Olympics, the cost of the licenses are just so big that they tend to eat up most of that revenue. But indeed, both London and Sochi were profitable, and, and we can talk about some of those reasons in a minute. Uh, so indeed, the first big challenge related to sports events is simply the cost for the rights to air them. And this time around, we have the cost of Rio at $1.23 billion. That's just for the rights to broadcast the Rio Olympics. And NBC, a couple years ago, signed another extension on their Olympic rights for 2021 to 2032, covering the, the six Olympics that'll happen in that period. $7.75 billion. Now, granted, those are not necessarily evenly spread across summer and winter games. Of course. But that's a lot of money, no matter how you look at it. Right. And so looking at that sort of revenue cost, you know, balance sheets type stuff, the question comes up, you know, why do it? I mean, certainly NBC has gone after these rights aggressively now for years. And And they've even outbid players like ESPN and Fox, who tried to jump in for, I believe it was the 2016, 2018, 2020 contracts. Well, the the advantages, the the things that don't show up on that profit and loss statement. And so there's generally a perception that there is some sort of halo effect around events such as the Olympics. And so one thing that the that NBC, not just the networks, NBC specifically can do is, is use that time to advertise certainly the fall lineup. It, it's timed very nicely with the late summer games this year, very close to the new fall season. So it's an opportunity to advertise their new fall schedule um, or even to launch new properties. NBC famously launched Jimmy Fallon's takeover of The Tonight Show uh, during the 2014 games. And even relaunched Jay Leno in his time slot after the 2010 games when he took The Tonight Show back over from Conan O'Brien. Right, so certainly in this era in which audiences are so fragmented and a network can't count on reaching the grand majority of viewers with its marketing messages on a regular basis, a big event like this or like the Super Bowl and even March Madness uh, can be really helpful in terms of getting a marketing message out to a wide audience. Well, especially when you have the Olympics, you have viewers essentially trapped for three weeks on your schedule. And they are going to watch that three-hour block of primetime, and you are going to be able to sell your wares to them. Exactly. And it's not even just that primetime lineup that can be important. And certainly it extends over into other day parts, and the Olympics won't just be in primetimes. That that will be the marquee programming, but also the way in which it may drive added viewership to NBC News, to the Today Show, to some of those other properties because of the various Olympic tie-ins that and, NBC is more likely you know, to NBC have. NBC puts uh, the Today Show in, re- in the location of the Olympics every year. So we're going to see Matt Lauer, but not Savannah Guthrie no, this time around. No. Savannah Guthrie is staying home, but Matt Lauer, Al Roker, they'll all be in Rio this time around. And, you know, Lester Holt, I believe, is he going to be in Rio? I am not sure. And so I think... I, it's a safe bet, but... Well, there, there is a lot of other news going on, That's true. one could say, stateside. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that even any kind of profit-loss analysis that's only taking into account the direct advertising during the airing of sporting events doesn't take into account whatever kind of bump other day parts uh, might receive as a result Especially of because the Olympics are going to air across every day part NBC has. They're going to have daytime coverage anchored by Mike Tirico, who just came over from ESPN. Uh, they're going to have their primetime coverage, and they're going to have late-night coverage anchored by Ryan Seacrest. So that 
points to one of the big issues with what we might call uh, the contemporary Olympics, which is how much more coverage is even part of the games now. So even before we start talking about digital, which is its own enormous amount of coverage, um, it's important to note NBC will offer 2,084 hours of programming just on its 11 linear networks. And so those linear networks include its various cable properties. USA, Bravo, NBC Sports Network is going to be huge for this. Right, so so thinking back to those Olympics past, I mean, there was an era in which the Olympics only aired on NBC or, to your memory, ABC, right? <laughs> it, it wasn't spread out across all of these co-owned Linear channels. When did that start, really? Was it mid-2000s? My guess early might be 2000s. early 2000s, okay. because a lot of the conglomeration took place in the, in the late 1990s. Then, on top of all of those that coverage on the linear networks, also NBC's offering 4,500 hours of coverage on digital. So every, I believe the advertisement is every minute of every sport will be broadcast live on their digital platforms. Right. And so it's almost impossible to wrap one's head around that. You know, as a viewer, that's such a different experience and, and arguably a, a far better experience, especially for people who were interested in Things other than women's gymnastics. So something like shooting or archery or events that might not necessarily get a primetime berth unless there's a U.S. gold medalist. Absolutely. And, and so the availability of all that coverage is great. But I think then coming back to sort of the business issues, I think we have to recognize how costly that is for NBC to have all those camera crews in place. Although um, they don't necessarily pay for announcers on Every sure. Channel. No, but but I think just thinking about the infrastructure of the satellite trucks and things oh, like that, you know, it's that's still huge. You know, Seacrest costs a lot, but that's not the only thing, <laughs> right? So, thinking about how the costs of that kind of availability, and I just can't imagine that, and and we'll certainly see as we, as we start engaging with the coverage, that whatever ad support that they have within that on-demand experience for whoever, you know, watching whatever niche sport you love, um, whether that advertising will in any way come close to covering the cost of making all that content available. And I'm sure their prime time and linear coverage will make more money than their digital coverage due to the nature of digital advertising. And that brings up another sports event that happens every year, and as a result, it gives us a little bit more data than the the Olympics, which happens every four years um, and has sort of all of these variables about different places in the world and time zones. Um, And, like, for example, Sochi was significantly different from our time zone, so things like figure skating might not be airing live. But Rio is an hour ahead of Eastern Standard Time, so they're going to be able to put more live coverage in prime time. Which is the dream of the network, for sure. Um, but that's. But I wanted to talk about March Madness. Um, yes. and, and that's really been an interesting space where CBS has been very aggressive as, again, taking advantage of what Not digital CB- allows. Not just CBS and Turner. Well, no, I want to say CBS specifically, because it's not the linear networks that I'm I'm thinking about so much as the making available of every game online digitally, right? And so what CBS has experienced has not been an erosion in the linear viewing, but actually increases. The addition of people who are going to stream the games, you know, again, every second, every game, every broadcast is put online into this portal. 
And so a lot of the thinking about mobile and digital television has been thinking about where a user is and what it allows a user to, you know, if you're still at work, you can still watch it. Or if you're... If you're in class and no, the No, not in lecturing. class, right? You know, that you can play shift. But I think one of the other big gains in a situation like these sports events where there's multiple events going on at the same time, historically, the networks, you know, with their scarce little broadcast spectrum, have had to say, okay, what event, what sport is going to reach are most people going to want to watch? And that's meant leaving out a whole bunch of others. And, and that still is the theory that NBC uses when placing what sports go in primetime, right? Well, of course. I mean, that, that's still always going to be, let's put it in quotes, the mothership, right? And that's where a lot of that extra content, the packages about the athletes, the big stories that people who aren't following sports otherwise might be paying attention to. Your Michael Phelps's, your women's gymnastics team. Right. And so like March Madness and the the availability of all the games uh, through a digital platform, uh, that's a, an important game change, um, pardon the pun, uh, in terms of availability as well. So it's not just that digital is an advantage to viewers who can watch in different places, but it also allows a greater amount of content, especially when that content is happening simultaneously. Absolutely. So you have a note on here about how... These events are not just important uh, for sports, but there are rare mass audience moments. And the question you wrote, though, will the Olympics really be that? Well, and that's that's always a question, right? So there certainly will be you know, people who will be announcing the daily viewing of things like the opening and the closing ceremonies, um, depending on you know what how you know, there's no way to predict, right? We don't know what will be the you know, the equivalent of the U.S. versus uh, Soviet Union hockey match, right? Like these, we don't know going into it what will the iconic Olympic moment be. No. Um, and, and certainly many people will show up for that. But I think the other side of making a lot of different content available is that that also spreads the audience out, especially when you have... Um, a population that might have really diverse interest in terms of sports and might not just be interested in this general narrative that might NBC Might not just be up. interested in your swimming, your women's gymnastics, the sports that, and your diving, the sports that will make prime time every single Olympics. Right. But in the past, it absolutely has been this mass moment. And a question I pose to you, will all the buzz and just the, the noise about Rio make this any different in the city? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think Rio has anything to do with any change in in audience behavior. I think there's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, it seems you know something tragic daily. Uh, there's a lot going on in politics in the states, which also you know is drawing a lot of air and attention. Um, and so I think those are are things that the sports coverage has to compete with. But from the the sports business perspective here, what I'm what I'm most curious about is. What is the effect of making more contests available and watchable? Um, and you know, is the is the mass audience really content to watch whatever NBC serves up in prime time, or does that audience you know illustrate some different behavior and some sort of pent up desire that they were never able in a in an analog era um, and to a degree even with the linear cable channels, you know, a, a desire for content that they weren't able to express because they couldn't go to it because it just wasn't there. Yeah, and my my guess is it would be a little bit of both. 
of course, with the nature of live events comes social media. And another, it, it's another big change and one that we're still, even 10 years after the invention of Twitter, still trying to get our head around. So, right, right. Although certainly much of the world actually not on Twitter, but... True, true. But it, it's a huge component of the sharing and the replay of the games. Right, and I think something, again, with something like the Olympics, it's every four years, you know, four years, you know, what is that? That's easily a decade in, in computer progress time, right? Um, and so in, I think we can look back at, you know, the difference between what was available in 08 uh, and 2012, just looking at the, the summer games, uh, and, and how much of what will be par for the course uh, in this Olympics that wasn't even available. And so, again, while it, it will be incredible that you will be able to share like that great you know track finish uh with all of your friends or you can miss something entirely and, and still know what and happens. feel fairly certain that you saw or you will be able to see the most important part and you will probably even be able to see the most important part through video right and and that you know that accessibility was something that didn't exist definitely two olympics ago to some degree even one um as you know by 2000 12, we had moved into video, I think, um, to a decent degree. Um, but I think that also potentially could have a, a negative effect on, on numbers if, if people sort of have the attitude, which is admittedly, it's kind of my attitude toward late night television, um, because I'm tired um, and I go to bed with the attitude that, well, if anything happens, I'll be able to see it tomorrow or it'll be in my Twitter feed or it will be around somewhere. And so what happens if the audience um, you know, takes that same attitude toward sporting events that they don't really care about, but maybe in another era would have watched just in case they didn't want to miss out, right? Fear of missing out. I, I, I think that's huge. But you also have, you know, the griping I see every single Olympics without fail from the people uh, I follow on the West Coast <laughs> in my Twitter feed is that they will know they will hear everything about the event three hours before it airs and they will know all the results and blah 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 well and i think that you noted before that certainly you know nbc is happy that it's an olympics in the time zone fairly close to you know the all four yeah, u.s time zones but you know that i think isn't is an unavoidable problem, and I think I don't, I don't well, know. It's the idea of tape delaying the primetime coverage into actual primetime instead of doing like what the Oscars and the Super Bowl do, where they air it live coast to coast. Right. Well, I assume with NBC's wide ranging coverage, though, that if you're on the West Coast, you'd be able to watch anything live. It may just not be on your NBC channel on your television. You you will be able to go to your local streaming box of choice and find it. Right. So, again, I think that is an important note about sports events is the challenge of time um, and in the way that previous eras of television allowed the controlling of time that um, the Internet disrupts in some pretty significant ways. But uh, uh, another question with all this technology out there, do they advance or hinder the aims of advertisers, who are the ones who generate any revenue at all for NBC. I think that remains to be seen. I, I'm, I'm very curious about how NBC does ads, specifically on its digital platform. I think you know, the ads in the, in the regular linear programming will be much as usual, and I think we can expect that audiences will not time shift significantly. But if they're there watching uh, the, the actual sports events, they're going to see those ads, and, and that will be great for advertisers. Um, but the bigger question is what kind of 
ad integration is done on the digital side? You know, do you have to watch pre-roll? Um, you know, are things embedded? And and so will ad block work? These are all good questions. Uh, and so, so the the issue then becomes if the mechanism for advertising on digital is not something that is as effective in terms of making sure audiences watch um, or is priced significantly differently than that linear television stream. And if a lot of the audience does, or a notable part of the audience, moves from the linear stream to more to those digital applications that have different advertising mechanisms. Right. Now, an idea that always plays in my head when we talk about you know, the mass audience and networks being able to advertise themselves to the mass audience. I, I hear the voice of Preston Beckman, the mass scheduler. He he loves to preach the idea that sports are a borrowed audience. And well, what do you mean by that? It means that they will go to, they will go to your network to watch the game, but they might not necessarily say follow, you know, your Olympic promotion. They might not necessarily follow the promotion to the actual shows themselves. They might not necessarily say, you know, you're, you put Col- Stephen Colbert after the Super Bowl. They so, might not necessarily continue with Colbert after they see that episode. Or they might not necessarily watch the Big Bang Theory episode that's being advertised in that event. So he's contradicting the notion that there is a significant halo effect. Yes, he is absolutely. And, you know, there there isn't necessarily a right answer to this even. We will see with the Super Bowl lead out that there will be no notable ratings bump for the show after that big Super Bowl airing. Colbert, The Blacklist, New Girl in Brooklyn Nine-Nine got no notable bump from their post-Super Bowl airing. Well, I'm, I'm going to take some exception here because I think to some degree it might, this again might be an issue of execution as opposed to like, does this theory work uniformly? Uh, and, and I think there are actually two different things in play here. So one is... Does the audience stay around? And so who's going to be the main beneficiary or not? Uh, the late night hosts. But I think that the issue of the borrowed audience does not speak to whether or not the Olympics are, or sporting events like this, are a valuable platform because of their marketing potential and because of the opportunity that they provide to expose audiences that might not see a long advertisement for one of NBC's most coveted fall dramas, right, that will see it and perhaps then might be more inclined to try it. Come fall. Now, mind you, if it's a bad show, they won't come back, as well they shouldn't. I, I still remember an interview he did with me, the... The first thing he said is, the most important thing is the show itself. You know, a, a good show will automatically do better than a word I can't use on this podcast show. Exactly. But it may be a good show, but if you don't have a good platform for promotion, then people won't find it for other reasons. So let, let's, let's move on a little bit now into talking about regular sporting leagues. So we're talking Major League Baseball. National Football League, National Basketball League, National Hockey League. What do you find relevant about these deals? Well, I think mainly I I just want to separate them from the sports events. In many ways, the regular league relationships and the nature of sports coverage on television, we haven't really seen huge change there. Uh, Certainly relative to what else has gone on in television in the last decade or so. Uh, Largely because 
because the nature of sport promotes live viewing. And so all of those old mechanisms developed for broadcast television still work very well for sport. People are watching live, they're not time shifting and then uh, going through, fast forwarding through commercials. Um, and sports has an uncommonly large range of opportunities for sponsorship. So I mean, I listen to the Yankees radio broadcasts, and the seventh inning stretch is sponsored. Painting the corner of home plate is sponsored. Like yes. you can put a you can put a sponsorship on pretty much anything you want to. So you have all of those sponsorship messages integrated. You've got all of those regular advertising breaks, and all of that is, for the most part, still working very well. And an important part of that still working well, though, is recognizing that the networks and channels that are bidding for and paying these licenses are really bearing all the risk in this time of really significant change. And, and this is the best case scenario for the leagues. And if you think about it, would you like to have a business where you go into each quarter not knowing how much you're going to sell, what your revenues will be? Or would you like to have... Now, five, ten years of billion dollars locked in, guaranteed. And you know that that amount of money will just keep going up and up and up be, or for, for the time being, well, at least. Well, we thought that anyway, so we'll, we'll disabuse uh, that, the possibility of that in just a moment. But, but, you know, so this is a really great scenario for the league. So all is good. Except once the networks do stop paying exorbitant rights, which everyone didn't think could ever happen because of exactly this, this presumption that the audience will not, or the, the subscriber audience. base. So it's important we pull these numbers okay. apart, the subscriber base as opposed to the audience. Um, so the subscriber base, and here it, it's, we're talking about ESPN. You know, what channel by far makes the most money each month? ESPN. Why doesn't ESPN make so much money? Because it is widely available, so it, its deals are to be on the most basic tier, and a cable provider, let's say Comcast here, you know, Comcast is paying ESPN in the neighborhood of $7 a month per household that receives the channel, whether or not they watch it at all. And does that, is that just ESPN, or is that the entire ESPN suite? Because the numbers I've heard are for the entire ESPN it's, suite. None of those are official numbers anyway. They're all, you know... The, the various financial services try to come up with estimates, but the one right. that r roughly circulates is, you know, r that ESPN is around seven. And, and, just it, and of course, the main ESPN is the most important of them all. You know, ESPN News, you know, ESPNU aren't necessarily as relevant. Right, and, and thinking about ESPN is a business and whether right. they're going to decide whether or not their individual divisions are profitable or not. But just to, you know, make sure we're clear here, uh, $7 for ESPN compares to... I don't think there's another channel out there that even gets two dollars. I've heard some channels getting roughly two two twenty five, but it, broadcast it's, networks maybe. I've, I mean, so the the point. I was hearing that with like your top tier cable, but really? yeah, uh, so, I could be I could be wrong. <laughs> all right. So importantly, though, ESPN in a class by itself in terms of of the money that it's making from subscription fees. And so the thing that has happened in the last year is that ESPN is in fewer homes than it has been in the past. And, and not a huge number. It's it's down 6.5 million. From um, 98.5 to 92. Right. Um, and so that might seem small, 
but what's important about it and why there was so much news last year about ESPN cutting something like 300 jobs and concern about Disney's profit earnings because Disney owns ESPN. That hurt Disney's stock substantially when Bob Iger went, oh, we might be losing some subscribers. Wall Street panicked. Right, because this this was the thing that could never happen. and But why that panic was so significant is that that 6.5 million households, if you multiply that by the $7 per month that they're receiving from, on average, a a cable service, uh, and then you multiply that by 12 months, that's $546 million a year that evaporated. Which is nothing to sneeze at, uh, even for a company that makes billions every month like ESPN. No, and I think the, the bigger thing is, the concern is that this is a sign of further things to come because there's continues to be a lot of attention to the inflated cost of the cable bundle the inability to well what has been until now and an inability to really get a smaller package and now some of these what called skinny bundles these uh internet distributed packages of channels so we're thinking you know sling tv, sling TV playstation TV, view Pony, uh, playstation view and now uh, potentially next year this suite of channels that hulu is going to offer right. um, some of them do include espn some of them don't um, and but what's happening is that there is increasingly an opportunity for homes that don't want to pay for espn to still receive the channels that they do without that you know gargantuan fee in their bill And, you know, another part of the panic with ESPN, the problems seem to go much deeper than just that pure subscriber loss. They've, in the past year and a half, they've lost some substantial names at the top of their network. They lost Bill Simmons, Mike Tirico, even. He He led their big football broadcast every week. He was the main commentator. They shut down sites like Grantland and... For the first time in a while that I can remember, they lost a major package, rights package. They lost the first pick on the Big Ten games, go blue, to Fox Sports starting in tw- fall 2017. And so, and I think if you look at everything you just listed there, that could be about money, right? You know, why do you shut down Grantland? Are you still, why are you losing talent? Are you refusing to pay as much? Um, and, and so that might be a matter of, of ESPN re-evaluating their budget in this recognition that right. they are committed five, ten years out in some cases to these rights. They can't, you know, that's that's a figure on the balance sheet that's not going away. No, they, well, they can't get out of these contracts. What can they change, right? They can let talent go. They can let these, these non-major things go. They cannot commit to a new big contract. Right, and that, that to me, like, especially the Big Ten, that's a really big deal to me. Well, we it, that might just be to us. Uh, well, I, I say that because it's a sign that they might not necessarily be willing to spend and spend and spend the way they used to. Which is good management, I would argue, yeah. right? And but and, and so this is an important inflection point, right? Is is when not only ESPN but when Fox also recognizes, you know, they're kind of over the barrel too. And so what then? And the big disruption, if we want to think about that in terms of sports and media in the future, is that moment when the rights deals won't go up and when the sports leagues then recognize that they can't just you know, continue to put all of the risk off onto the networks and channels and, and to do some more. I'm sure they're already doing the evaluation of the cost benefit of going without any kind of middleman and going a direct-to-consumer well, service. Well, there are some, there are 
pretty much every major sports league owns a network of their own. Like the NFL owns NFL Network and MLB has MLB Network, NBA TV. Right. And so, but the question is, what is the content that's actually available? So oddly as it may seem, I think the, the interesting case to watch here is WWE Network. Okay. In terms of NFL Network is fine, but it doesn't have most of the games on it. No, it right. will have one package of games, maybe two. Right. During so, the what happens when the leagues broadcast effectively or distribute their own content, and and there is no one in between them and their audience? Well, and and I also think that they're going to go another route. They're going to. They've already. The NFL has already started with this. Tennis has already started with this, but selling to digital platforms. So instead of selling, you know, the digital rights to the network, selling the digital rights to games like the NFL and Twitter and right. NFL and Yahoo. So I think we can see that as a, a corollary to a windowing, right? What we yeah. know in scripted as windowing. Let's wait and see whether that actually works at all, right? Like, I think anything with Twitter, that's really just about trying Twitter trying to get some attention. I don't think that's... And, 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 yet and with bonuses, Yahoo, it was obviously Yahoo trying to get attention. Right. I mean, well, we, we say how well that worked out for them. They just sold. None of those, none of those deals are, are in any way cannibalizing the main contract, though. And so right. I, I don't think you're ever going to see the kind of ancillary money in digital... Um, to sort of come close to you know, making up that what core. the eventual goal right, in. right. Okay. That was a pretty thorough look at sports on television. Uh, I don't know about that, but we definitely <laughs> scratched the surface there. Indeed. And it's time to move on to our last segment of each and every show. What are we watching this week? Amanda, what are you watching this week? Uh, two very different things. I am catching up on the current season of Orphan Black. Uh, and I just started uh, the previous, or current, recently ended season of Game of Thrones. Uh, I, I'm very happy to hear you say <laughs> that, because especially so we can now talk about them, because I thought this season of Orphan Black was a pretty big return to form for the show. They kind of narrowed down the focus and kind of re, re-energized it a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun summer show as far as I'm concerned. How about you, Alex? What are you watching? I, well, I've got two things down here. I've been going on a huge, huge BoJack Horseman binge. All right. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting show because I would never have expected an animated show about a horse to be a thorough and indicative look of celebrity in the modern age. Uh, I'm a few seasons behind at this point, but uh, I'm, I'm reading a lot about it. So the third season sounds like it's, uh, it's, it's as good as the others have been. And... I'm also watching Mr. Robot, which just came back for its second season and remains one of the most beautiful shows on the air right now in terms of cinematography and Rami Malek's lead performance is just fantastic. Those are two very different shows. Yeah, it, you, you have to be in exactly the right mindset to watch either of them, yeah. but they, they both work very well. Or maybe a little bit of Mr. Roebuck and then, uh, you know, some Bojack Horseman to lighten things up. Yeah, there, and, right? and, and maybe throw some Game of Thrones when you want some murder in there. How are you liking this season, by the way? Um, uh, uh, yeah. You know, I've never <laughs> been anyone who thought, who, you know, it's entertaining. Um, I think Game of Thrones is amazing television visually it amazes me this is television right um and so as i'm watching the, you know these large scenes of the Dothraki wilderness and you know sort of 
thinking in my head, you know, how much of this is actually computer generated. Uh, you know, like the the it's it's amazing as spectacle, but I, I'm not one of those who believes that it perhaps deserves as much uh, award presence as it has achieved. See, I understand a lot of their award presence because the Below the Line nominations, which is where most of its nominations are, and its directing nominations are genuinely deserving. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed this season. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit more once you've finished and I can, we can kind of go full spoiler, but I thought this season was much tighter and much more cleanly told than season five, which I thought was a mess in a lot of ways. And it also made me really angry at certain parts, (laughs) but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, it's so sprawling. And the, the thought I caught myself having as I was watching last night was, I wonder what it would be like if someone edited it together all of the individual stories and, like, the ability to just watch, you know, Sansa's story from start to finish instead of constantly having it interrupted, let's say, with, you know, someone else's story. Or Bran's story, having him come back after a year away. Exactly. So I, I think, it, for to my taste, the the scope of the show is somewhat challenging. Um, I think maybe it's I just can't contain quite this many plot lines in my head at the same time. Yeah, it, it's definitely a difficult show to watch in that sense. Um, you, one one plot line kind of has to hold the door uh, to the other, and it doesn't necessarily work smoothly. Yeah. Well, I think that covers it for this week. You can find more episodes of Media Business Matters on amandalots.com by clicking the Media Business Matters link on the top of the page, or you can go on iTunes and search Media Business Matters. Amanda, where can our listeners follow you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon.